Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Good evening, children of the night. I had lost track of time. Come on in. I've been sitting here doing what I do in between stories, and that's pondering our difficult-to-define genre. I've mused on this before, and likely will again after tonight, but I just finished up reading an opinion piece on Vice by Josiah Hesse. Its title? Why are so many horror films Christian propaganda? The title was enough for me to bite. I've seen a good number of scary movies, and I couldn't think of a single one that I left thinking, wow, I really should get to church more. But I read the article, and it was a bit thought-provoking. The author points out that in quite a few movies, the protagonist leans on a shield formed from some piece of Christianity to save him or her from the supernatural threat. And conversely, someone who runs contrary to Christian values is usually gobbled up by the monster. In a welcome but surprising bit of point-counterpoint in an opinion piece, the author quotes from a professor of religion and art history at Duke who responds that the filmmakers are simply using cultural currency to tell a story. And I found that a satisfactory response. If you're telling a tale about ghosts and demons, there is already a fundamental cultural place to draw communal imagery from in the West, and that's the dominant religion. I talked about the Korean film The Wailing a few weeks back, and I feel like that there is someone in Korea who might have written a similar piece, removing the word Christian for traditional shamanism. But enough of my pondering. Just before we move on to our stories, I just wanted to mention that while growing up in a conservative evangelical household, nearly every scary movie was banned, including some of the ones mentioned 
as Christian propaganda. We begin tonight's fiction with a story from David Court. David Court was born and resides in the Midlands, UK, with his patient wife, Tara, and his three less patient cats. When not reading, drinking real ale, writing software for a living, or practicing his poorly developed telekinetic skills, he can be found writing fiction and has a number of short stories published in anthologies, including Fears Accomplish, Terror at the Beach, Caped, and The Voices Within, along with contributions to the Twisted Dark and Twisted Sci-Fi series of graphic novels. He's written three anthology collections, The Shadowcast by the World and Forever and Ever, Armageddon, and Scenes of Mild Peril, and is putting the finishing touches on his first novel, which he hopes to release shortly. Sit back and listen to David Quartz, 83. It's only as the taxi drives past it for the fourth time in as many minutes that you spot the number outside the building and yell out at the driver for him to stop. You'd felt quite calm up until now, but as you fumble with a handful of change to pay him, you notice that your hands are shaking. You step out of the cab into the chill of the early morning air and take a few deep breaths in an attempt to calm yourself. You straighten your tie and then your jacket and begin to step slowly towards number 83. You're not quite sure what you were expecting, but you can't help but feel a little disappointed. In your mind's eye, you'd imagined a huge, grandiose, towering building of mirror and steel and not not this tiny, anonymous, thin, windowless concrete block with a single door. For a moment, panic grips you and you're worried about whether you've come to the right place, but Another glance at the business card confirms that this is definitely the right address. The business card itself is a thing of great beauty. Brushed stainless steel with the address embossed on its surface, no company name, no phone number, just a large number 83 followed by the street name. After they had called you unexpectedly to offer you the job interview and confirm the date for it, the card was there on your doormat when you arrived home. You'd spent a considerable amount of time turning it over in your hands, admiring the craftsmanship. Standing in front of the plain black door, you take a deep breath and turn the handle, but it's firmly locked. You glance around, looking for some manner of intercom, but before you spot anything, you hear a tinny voice through some hidden speaker. 83? A female voice asks, a questioning inflection at the end. You try to sound as confident as possible as you give your name and that you have an interview at 8.12, such a specific time to be given, but you're stumbling over your words as they spill out of your mouth. There is a moment of pause before the door opens with a faint click. Here goes nothing, you mutter to yourself as you step inside. The interior of the building is as sparse as its exterior. Plain red clay walls with no ornamentation with a single door leading to the building beyond. There is a plain black lectern behind which a woman stands and a single white door. She smiles at you as you approach, but it seems forced, a Richter's grin. She gestures towards the chair upon which you sit down. You're about to turn to face her to blurt out some kind of pleasantry about the uh, the weather we've been having when she gestures towards the door behind her and tells you that he's ready for you now. He's sitting across the table from you, but as you walk into the room, he stands up. His face is expressionless as he leans across the table, his right arm outstretched. You take his hand, which dwarfs your own, and shake it, noticing the strength of his grip. He sits back down and gestures at you to do the same. 
He's a handsome man, all cheekbones and designer stubble, dressed in an expensive single-breasted black suit that probably cost as much as your car, and he cuts an imposing figure. Even if you'd met him outside the naturally terrifying environment of an interview, he'd intimidate you. The room itself is the same red clay color as the foyer and is equally as bare, windowless, two chairs, three doors, two behind him and the one you've just entered through, and a single table with a large old wooden box lying upon it. The box has the number 83 scrawled upon its top in thick black marker. Open the box, he says, a faint smile at the corner of his lips. You nod and reach towards the tiny iron clasp that keeps it closed, unhooking it with trembling hands. You lift up the lid, standing up as you do so, and looking at the box's contents. It has two compartments, each lined with a red velvet material. The left partition contains a large and hefty-looking wrench, and the other a worn lump hammer with a cracked wooden handle. You look to the interviewer, but his face is expressionless. Is this an initiative test? What are you supposed to do? Pick one? He's staring at you as you slowly reach towards the wrench and you notice that one of his eyebrows is raising the closer you get. Your hand moves to the lump hammer and you grasp it by the handle. He's nodding ever so slightly as his eyes narrow. As you take the hammer out, he's pulling the wooden box towards him and closing the lid. You're feeling slightly foolish as you're standing there holding it not knowing what to do next as the door behind him opens and two men walk in, both equally as smart as your interviewer. He doesn't acknowledge either of them. The smaller of the two men enters the room first and picks up the box. The second is holding a large khaki canvas bag that he places on the table. The room immediately fills with its musty, stale scent. It's only when the two men walk back out of the room and close the door behind them that you hear the whimpering coming from inside the bag. It's a male voice, muffled as though gagged. The bag is huge, definitely large enough to hold a full-grown man. The interviewer is staring as you look back at him incredulously. You place the hammer on the table and take a few steps back, trying to distance yourself from both it and this entire situation. I don't know what, you stammer, confused and scared. Your hand meets the door handle and you start to turn it. If you leave this room, it's an automatic fail says the interviewer. His face remains impassive. This isn't what I... You stutter again, your voice a mixture of confusion and panic. Pick up the hammer. Is that is that a man in there? I don't know what you think you'd... Pick up the hammer or leave. If this is some sort of sick joke, you say indignantly, the words finally forming full sentences, then, then it's not very funny. I thought this was going to be a job interview. It is a job interview. You stated in your CV that you are adaptable and able to rise to any challenge. Adapt, rise to the challenge. You suddenly realize you're back at the table with the hammer in your hands. The muffled sobbing continues from inside the bag, which moves ever so slightly. You flinch at the sight. Use the hammer. This can't be real, right? This has to be a test. It's a trick of some kind, designed to see how you react. You've heard about this sort of thing before. Extreme psychological tests designed to weed out the weak, yeah. That's probably a dummy in the bag with some kind of speaker to make it sound alive. As you watch it, it's definitely not moving now. You probably imagined it. A number of things go through your mind as you bring the hammer back. 
the promised salary that makes your current wage look like peanuts, the bonus package for relocating and the sheer esteem that working for this place will do for your credibility. The hammer thuds down in the center of the bag against something soft, organic. The whimper turns to a sudden stifled cry of pain as the bag jolts violently. That felt real, you think, as you stagger back. You drop the hammer that lands at your feet with a metallic clunk. There's now a drawn-out sobbing coming from inside the back. The interviewer stares at you again. Pick up the hammer or leave. You look from him to the hammer and put both your hands over your mouth. Your heart is racing and your breathing is coming thick and fast as you try to figure out what you're going to do next. Could the police? Would they believe you? What if this was just a test? Moreover, if not, you're the one who used the hammer. Whose word would they believe? Again, you realize you're holding the hammer. For the next few minutes while you use the hammer repeatedly, you find it easier if you stare at the interviewer, not at the bag. If only it was so easy to shut the noises out. The wailing that the bag makes with each blow. The gurgling cracking that it makes with every few hits. You stagger back, exhausted, weeping. Open the bag, commands the interviewer. You tentatively approach the undulating canvas and your finger grips on the zipper and slowly pulls it open. The ruined red thing that lies curled in the fetal position inside the sodden interior barely resembles a man anymore. Whatever it is glares at you with a single tear-filled bright blue eye from a shattered patchwork thing that was once a face. A cry of anguish pours out of you as you look at your handiwork. You did this, that single unblinking eye says. You did this. Finish the job, barks the interviewer. Your grip loosens around the handle of the hammer, your palms soaking with sweat. It'd be an act of mercy now. Finish the job, he insists. I can't, you sob, the hammer falling to the ground. When it was hidden in the bag, it was easier. Now your actions have a face, had a face. The two men walk back into the room. Without meeting your gaze, the taller of the two zips the canvas back up and takes it out of the room, a thin trail of blood dripping in its wake. The other man picks up the hammer and walks out, the interviewer following him. You're alone. You're contemplating your next action, whether to go back out the way you came in and run for it, when the interviewer steps back into the room, now carrying a clipboard. You briefly get a glimpse of tiny black writing on a sheet of paper attached to it, a document crisscrossed with green ticks and red crosses. There are a few moments of silence as he reads it. A smile forms on his face. Congratulations. We found a suitable position for you. Welcome on board. You're shell-shocked as he takes you by the shoulder and walks you towards the door that you've yet to see open. There's the beginning of hysterical laughter leaving your lips as you turn the handle and step inside, the interviewer remaining in the room and closing the door behind you. Your eyes don't even have the time to acclimatize to the dim light before they've got the gag in your mouth and pushed you into the canvas bag. That was David Kortz, 83, as read by Kashik Narish Simhan. Kashik is a management consultant by day and writer by night with a keen interest in psychedelics and role-playing video games. His link will be in the show notes, and I'd recommend giving it a visit if for nothing else, seeing an example of a very pleasant design. Our second dark tale is spun by 
Owen Claiborne. Owen Claiborne is a British-American writer of short and full-length stories, which usually incorporates some element of the supernatural. He lives on a windswept island in the North Atlantic. And here comes Owen Claiborne's The Worms. Arlo Tucker ate the infected pork on a Monday, collapsed the following Thursday, and was finally admitted to the hospital on that Saturday. After no small amount of deliberation, and toing and froing of nurses, and coming and going of doctors, the tentative conclusion was drawn that Tucker, the famous novelist, did not have tuberculosis at all. He had pinworms in his brain. If you insist, he said when he got the news. He thought that was terribly witty, and meditated for a moment on what a brave and clever man he was, even in these dire circumstances. Actually, if they insist, said the doctor, tapping the scan he had just shown Tucker. Er, yes, Tucker grumbled. I suppose that would make more sense. I hope you weren't halfway through your next thriller, the doctor probed, somewhat insensitively. Actually, no. I haven't been all that productive so far this year, if truth be known. Well, get some rest. There's every sign that we will operate tomorrow morning. Can't you do it now? I don't want another epileptic attack, doctor. Well, we could. But we have to be sure it's really neurocystosarcosis, you see. There's a specialist flying in tonight, a Dr. Farron for. She'll take a look, most likely confirm our diagnosis, and we'll proceed accordingly in the morning. Now, please get some sleep, Mr. Tucker. Alone again, Arlo tried to relax. He had brought his laptop with him to the hospital, probably in vain. He had the bare bones of a new novel and wanted to work on the thing, but his fainting episodes this afternoon had put a stop to that. Just when he was getting past the writer's block that had held him in its grip since the start of winter last year, these goddamned parasites had showed up and thrown a spanner in the works. Five spanners, according to the scan. He closed his eyes and tried to put the image out of his mind, but it was all he could see, the semicircle of his brain in cross-sections, five white nodes denoting the locations of the pinworm larva that were currently residing in his gray matter. Tucker did finally manage to get to sleep, the laptop glowing where it lay perched on his chest, his fingertips resting on the keys as his chest lifted it, lowered it, lifted it. The worms went to work. His hands twitched. His eyes began to dance, gyrating beneath the skin of his eyelids. His fingers tapped the keys, organized, automatic, and words lined up on the screen, the text marching down, down, eating up the blankness. A new story was being told. The story of the worms. The following morning, Susan Blaycroft, Tucker's publisher, received an email from her star author, a text document was attached, entitled The Worms. With the usual gleeful anticipation she felt at being sent one of Tucker's stories, she printed off the twenty or so pages and sat down at her desk to read them. The look of pleasure on her face slowly changed. Her brow creased. Her eyes became wide. Her mouth puckered in disgust, then fell open. Five pages in, she tossed the manuscript onto her desk. Then, hooked by morbid fascination... She again picked up the horrible thing and finished it off in one sitting. She sat for a moment afterwards, breathing heavily and staring out her window at the Manhattan skyline. There was a terrible hunger in her belly, but something, 
Some steel in her soul was fighting against it. She grabbed her phone off the desk and called Tucker's number. Hey, this is Tucker. Arlo, what the hell is... If you really need to get in touch, you'll have to call Midcoast Hospital on 373-6000. No need to be alarmed. Probably just a routine thing. Arlo out. What the... Susan Blaycroft called the number in Maine and waited for it to pick up, but she rang off before anyone answered. She stood, crossed the office, and reached for her coat. There were two messages waiting for Tucker when he switched on his phone. Only two? He listened to them whilst watching the sun come up. The birds wittered in the tree outside his window. It was a broadleaf, clothed in the colors of fall. He wondered absentmindedly what species it was. Hello, honey, his wife calling from her parents' home in Kashiwara, Japan. I hope your headaches have gotten better. We're all thinking of you. Dad loved your book, by the way. He said it was better than Lee Child. Goodbye, honey. I love you. He rolled his eyes. The next message was from his publisher. He listened once through, not really paying attention at first, but something in her tone made him sit up. The birds were really going at it now, out in the tree, whatever it was. He wished they would shut up. He listened to the message again. Scowling, he called for the nurse. Good morning, Mr. Tucker, she said as she came into the room. Did you sleep okay? Where's my laptop? Oh, they put that away for you. Look, it's over here on the side. Do you want it? He held out his hand. Please. He took the laptop from the nurse, opened it, and turned it on. Can I do anything else for you, Mr. Tucker? No, thank you. He waited impatiently for the operating system to boot up. Dr. Farinfor will be along shortly, said the nurse, and left. Arlo Tucker found on his laptop no record of the story Susan Blaycroft had asked him about. Neither was there any sent email address to her in his outbox. A search of his recent computer history revealed no such document. The door opened. A good-looking female doctor appeared in the doorway and smiled at him. He closed his laptop and smiled back. He had a feeling he was going to like Dr. Farron for. The Worms by Arlo Tucker appeared in print form two weeks later as part of an anthology published by Susan Blakecroft's literary imprint, Infinite Island. The book was called Mind Alembics, Volume 4. Blakecroft did not remember the process of publication for this particular piece, but then there was not much that she did remember now. People parted around her as she knelt in the street outside the foyer of her office block, a building she had not entered for just over a week. With her filthy clothes and matted hair, dirty pages spilling from her coat pockets, she was almost unrecognizable as the editor-in-chief of one of New York's biggest publishing houses. It was hard to tell at first what she was eating off the sidewalk. In fact, it took a child to state what should have been obvious. Ew, Mommy! That woman's eating dog shit! Alerted by a spreading wave of horror and revulsion, two police officers began to make their way towards the kneeling woman. There was a brief exchange, following which a taser was unholstered. At about the same time, on the other side of the Atlantic, an up-and-coming literary critic who had turned on lunch with his on-again, off-again boyfriend found himself in a deli on Oxford Street, London, looking at a display of raw meat products. Minutes later, crossing into Hyde Park, the man tore the wrapper off the length of uncooked sausage meat he had just purchased and began to wolf it down, much to the disgust of some passers-by. In a coffee shop in Rotterdam, a man dropped his rucksack onto the floor beside his table, ripped open the pack of bacon he had bought at a nearby grocery store, and began to tear into it, gulping, barely chewing. 
The proprietor ambled over, drawn by the sounds of disapproval from his clientele, and placed a hand on the man's shoulder. Tatum Tegan. Time to go. The man rose, typing furiously on his phone as he shouldered his cumbersome bag. A copy of Mind Alembics Volume 4 tumbled unseen onto the floor, and was later found by the owner of the coffee shop, who placed the book on a shelf for his patrons to read. I don't know what's going on, Harlow told his wife over the phone a few days later. Susan hasn't answered my calls for almost three weeks, and her whole staff seems to have gone on holiday at once. It's not only that, Azami, but it seems everyone I know has gone completely off the grid. No one's answering their phones or replying to emails, and the few people I have seen are just acting plain weird. I saw Dan. You remember Dan Taylor. I went by his apartment tonight. It took him forever to answer the door, and when he did, he just stank. I mean, really stank. Like, well, like, excrement. Excrement? Yeah, you know. Poo? He smelled like poo? Yeah, I mean, his breath. Maybe he's not feeling so well. I'll say he's not feeling well. He was clutching his head, and his eyes were all over the place. Then he said he had to finish working on some story and shut the door in my face. I mean, he doesn't even write. At least, I never thought he did. You must be a big inspiration on him, Azami laughed. You know, you may have something there. He paused, unsure of whether or not to mention the next bit of news. I was sent a piece of writing by a past student of one of my writing courses. Oh yeah? What'd he say? She didn't say much. It was just, hi Arlo, read this kind of thing, and an attachment. You see what it said? You read it? No, I didn't, but the title was The Worms. Yeah, funny name for a story. I wonder what it's about. But you don't know yet, huh? Maybe you should read it? I'm not going to read it. What's that noise in the background? Gee, I don't know, honey. Just helicopters going by. Oh, okay. Listen, what's weird is The Worms is the title of the story Susan was trying to tell me about. The one she said I wrote, but I don't remember. Don't have any record of writing. You see? Don't you think that's weird? Yeah, Arlo, that's so weird. Say, you feel okay now, after your operation and all? I feel fine, Azami, really, just a little freaked out. You want to come stay here for a while, honey? Recuperate? Oh, I don't know, Azami. You know I'd love to, but you're working on something. I understand. Actually, no. It's strange, but I just don't feel like writing a single word right now. No, I just... I don't know. I feel that I shouldn't come out there to you. That I'd be putting you in danger in some way. Danger? Really? What sort of danger? I can't explain it. I think something's happening. Two days later, Azami sat on the floor in her parents' house and turned on her phone. She hadn't checked her social media accounts for a while. She had been all over social media once upon a time, before she had gotten bored with cat pictures, inspirational quotes, and constant updates about the utterly ordinary kids of people that she didn't know. She had accounts with all the major websites, as well as a few of the lesser-known ones. She picked her favorite and entered her account details. She waited for the server to log her in. It was taking a long time. In the background, she could hear her mother sloshing around in the toilet, giving it a good clean, as Ami thought. Then a message popped up on the screen, and she frowned. The website was down. She tried another social media network. The same thing happened. On the third attempt, a website finally let her in. 
Her mother walked past, and Azami said hi, but the elderly woman's mouth was full, and she didn't answer. Azami began to read the top posts. She gasped and covered her mouth. Oh, yeah, ma! Every single post was entitled The Worms, and consisted of a block of text. In each and every instance, the post had been shared and thumbsed up thousands of times. She phoned Arlo. It's the middle of the night, Azami. Arlo, Arlo, something crazy, Arima. What is it? What's wrong? Something crazy is happening. That story. What story? Slow down. The worms. Oh, for crying out loud. I'm sick to death. Look, send it to me. Send it. Send it to me. I want to read this damn thing. A moment later, Arlo sat in the darkness and the silence and opened his laptop. He got into his emails and waited for one for Azami to drop into the inbox. It was windy outside, and he listened to the trees rushing and hushing in the woodland that surrounded his house. Somewhere, an owl hooted. Masked by the sounds of nature, he thought he could make out, on the very edge of hearing, the distant rattle of gunfire. The email arrived. Arlo opened it. The worms. He began to read. He stared at the screen, his heart thudding. This is the beginning of the domination of the worm. A new phase in the integration of our species has begun, and exposure to our offspring will now be maximized. You will replicate the following message wherever you can. Half an hour later, he put the laptop aside with shaking hands, stood uncertainly, and wandered downstairs. He opened the fridge and rummaged around, suddenly ravenous. His hand closed on a pack of hamburger meat, fresh from the butcher's. He took it out and closed the door. A moment later, the wrapper fluttered to the floor, and the sounds of chewing mixed with the susurration of the wind in the trees. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That was Owen Claiborne's The Worms, as read by our very own editor, Scott Silk. Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. In his spare time, his interests include reading, writing, urban gardening, traveling, 
foreign cuisine, tattoos, social justice, cartoons, growing his hair out, and not wearing pants. Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his boyfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can sometimes be found babbling about speculative fiction and his other interests on Twitter, at ScottSilk13. Thank you, Scott. And here comes our third story of the evening, Children of the Night. A former youth worker who has spent roughly half his life in England and the other half in Canada, David Antrobus now pursues writing as a vocation, demonstrating his lifelong and unerring talent for eking out low-paying work. He has written music reviews, articles, essays, creative nonfiction, and fiction for venues as disparate as The Georgia Strait, Pop Matters, and Indies Unlimited. He has also published two nonfiction ebooks and has several dark, disquieting, and often surprising humane stories featured in various anthologies. Somewhat obsessive-compulsive, definitely post-traumatic, he nevertheless values kindness very highly. He lives just east of Vancouver. Now, I think you'll enjoy David Androbus's They Were Pale and They Came Out of the West. If it's all right with you, I'm just going to start talking here and see where it leads. When they made their slow way into town that evening, a few of us was out and about, and from our various vantage points we watched their pale tribe arrive as they limped toward town across the desert scrub. The sky a singular deep blue and the far mountains smoky purple-gray under a scattering of early stars. Giant distant cowboy fires under ember sparks. I say pale because I can't grasp the proper word right this minute. Not transparent, exactly. More like translucent. Yeah, that's the word. Their skin gave off a sickly blue-green glow against the darkening earth, their long limbs shuffling, their ponderous heads nodding as they cradled their small ones in their arms, looking as if neither hope nor expectation, let alone simple comfort, had ever once visited their dolorous thoughts. There were perhaps around a hundred of them, and they walked in clumps of four or five or sometimes as many as ten. I can't speak for no one else, but my stomach lurched in cold pity, and with a fairly close cousin to dread. The passing of days gave their strangeness both a context and a camouflage, the town almost shamed by their presence into a general reluctance to even acknowledge these new guests as anything beyond the ordinary. Conversations at the Red Ridge Diner or over at the wrangled steer would briefly catch the edge of courage and rear above the general murmur for a moment or two, then collapse back as if humbled by a secret sickened awe. What were we being visited by? Aliens was a popular answer, of course. More creative theories. Future humans come to warn us about something, or casualties of the nuclear waste dumps in the hills, or even ghost refugees of the town's troubled past, floated above the fray for scant moments, till subsiding in the awkward white noise of daily life. I, for one, spent even more time in the town's small library than usual. Loneliness after a personal tragedy had led me to book learning decades before. Reading about familiars and visitations and demons and such, but I found no more answers there than in the juke joints and alehouses. The odd time, a few brave or stupid or just plain mean souls approached him more directly, mostly just blustering to show they weren't to be pushed around, like a quick dust devil blowing up in the desert, fading quick as they started, 
a lot of yelling and posturing, hot air thunder without the snap of lightning. But this one time was different. I was there on the corner of Douglas and Grand the day Randall Greer got all liquored up and started to hail a cluster of four of the beings. His buddy Garrison Cole tried to stop him, but Randall had the bit between his stubborn jackass teeth and kept calling out, Hey, freaks! Yo, freaks! Get your long, skinny asses over here where I'm talking to you! And the group barely paused in their sluggish crossing of the intersection, their drooping eyes exactly as sad, hopeless as the last time anyone looked, which inflamed old Randy further, till he was dancing a circle around the tight group or family, whatever the heck it was. They trod and plotted while he capered around them until the crazy fool grabbed at one of them long limbs of the tallest of them. The sound he made at that point was about as pretty as the scream of a she-cougar getting the old barbed pecker treatment in the lonesome night, if you'll pardon my turn of phrase, or a man falling in a nest of rattlers. When he pulled back his hand, you could actually see the flesh still bubbling under the fluttering strands of flayed skin, cooked gobbets dropping to the ground. Aggravating as that, no good son of a bitch could be. No one deserves something like that. Poor fella had to have his arm amputated below the elbow. Understandably, not a soul tried to touch one of them things after that. At least not in anger, anyways. Not until the events leading up to their final day, at least. Which I'm getting to. But it weren't all bad. There was the day when Jenny Lou Tucker busted into the diner all hysterical, screaming and crying about her youngin, Edie May, and we feared the worst, most of us bolting up out of our chairs like it was time for a reckoning or something. When we got in the street, we saw Gregory Crowther's jalopy parked over what looked like a pile of rags, until we realized those rags was a baby, and not only that, but a baby ominously still. And then we noticed the wrecked baby buggy and the impossible angle of the automobile while one of the pale ones pulled the infant from beneath it. A few of us moved to grab the limp child from the thing, but it turned those sorrow eyes that seemed to silent howl the full loneliness of the night sky at us. And we stopped in our tracks, cowards that we were, that we are. And then the thing placed its long, rubbery snout over Tiny Edie's head, an opening attaching like a suction cup to the broken-looking whatchamacallit, the fontanelle, and remained like that for a minute, two minutes. All of us froze in place, the only sounds our group breathing and a kind of liquid sense of something passing queasily between the infant and the creature. Then Edie let out a hell of a cry, and a spell got broken. Jenny Lou flew across the red dirt to clutch her child to her ample bosom, and the thing just moseyed away, not looking at any of us requiring no thanks or no human notion of gratitude, reward, nothing. Now and again, pinned helpless in the airless hush of a sleepless night, I wonder about Jenny Lou's child and what lies quiet and still on some future back road, waiting for the adult Edie Mae Tucker to pass. It seemed to go on years. I got no real idea how long. Sometimes, the migrants felt like they were the grandfathers of our own tribe, a lost melancholy band of kinfolk, sent to remind us of the bones that lay beneath our brick-hued dirt, forgotten bones of friend and foe alike. Other times, it was like they were recent visitors and just as recent transients, itinerants sent by some baleful trickster god I personally wouldn't ever bow to, can't speak for no one else, of course. Well, something had to give, and one evening, sure enough, it did. After his accident, 
Turns out one-armed Randy hadn't had much of the jackass shocked out of him as a smarter fellow might have done. So I suppose, given time, it was inevitable he'd worked up another head of dumb corn-poned steam and come at the pale ones again, harder and more boneheaded. Started early one evening in the wrangled steer. I was drinking still at that point, although not as much as I used to, so there I was at the bar nursing a whiskey and shooting the breeze with Davy McCullum, the bartender, when Randall, Garrison, and a couple of boys just young and plenty dumb enough to look up to the other two as fine specimens of masculinity made their raucous way into the establishment. To me, they seemed drunk already, all spit and swagger, sneers and smirks. They ordered beers, and I could see Randy was too worked up to even grab a stool and sit his scrawny ass down. He was gesticulating, swinging his fake arm around dangerously so his garrison had to keep ducking out of the way. They're all just stood there, like motherfucking cows in a feedlot. The two boys were nodding their heads enthusiastically, as if trying to make an ember catch. Though this here ember needed a little fanning. Yeah, Randy, said one of them. I think his name was Boyd. We'll call his buddy Floyd. Their names don't matter much, and besides, my memory ain't what it used to be. Creepiest thing I ever saw. Stood there like they's asleep. Fuck, yeah, said Floyd. Fellas, let's just try and forget about them, and have a few beers and shoot some pool. Once again, poor Garrison trying to play peacemaker. Makes me wonder why he ever bothered trucking with that fool. Suppose we'll never find out now, at least not in this life, which I'm starting to hope's the only damn one. I ain't forgetting nothing, mutant fucks. Clean took my arm off in case you need your memory jogging, Garrison Cole, and this shithole of a town should be giving me a goddamn purple star after what I'd done. The only one around here with a dick big enough to stand up to him. He spit on the floor, took another slug of whatever watery piss he took for a real man's beer. Fuck yeah, said Floyd. Damn right. Don't either need nor want their kind around here. And besides... This went on a while as they got louder and more belligerent. I mostly tuned them out, knocked back a couple more whiskeys, and decided to get on home. These boys were just not about to simmer down. I settled with Davy, who rolled his eyes at the commotion in front of him and headed out. The encroaching night was quiet, couldn't even hear the barking of a dog, no wind whatsoever. After all that yelping and yapping, it was a nice contrast. As I turned down Grand Street, I saw a group of the beings stood stock still in a weedy lot beside Hank's hardware. Far as I know, they were the same ones got Randy all riled up earlier and hadn't even moved since. There were five of them, two of the little ones perched in their arms, each of them looking lost and abandoned in its own opaque thoughts. I tried to avert my eyes as I passed, but something made me slow and look right at them. Probably the three whiskeys burning in my gut, truth be told. We all got a little Randall Greer inside us, I suppose. What's your business here, strangers? Why you gotta upset the good folk of this sleepy town? Even to me I sounded weak and prissy, like a tired old preacher man, too weary to even do much preaching. They slowly turned to look at me, and I was taken with an odd feeling I can't properly describe. It was like I was a child, and I'd done some bad thing at school, and now my pa was waiting for me to fess up 
his very patience adding to my shame the longer I stayed mute. Like they knew more about me than I did myself. I felt dishonorable, scandalized, panicked. I had to work real hard to break eye contact and was about to hightail it out of there when I heard the familiar braying of the Greer gang. Shit. They was staggering a little, but I could tell they meant business, even Garrison. And sitting there, all snug in Randy's remaining hand, was a big old Smith & Wesson six-shooter. My heart rate went up a notch. I could already see the futility, but I had to try, especially with Garrison so far gone to act as brakeman on this runaway train of fools. That's a bad idea, Randall Greer. Boyd laughed at my accidental poetry and mimicked me. That's a bad idea, Randall Greer. A bad idea, Randall Greer. Randy backhanded Boyd with his real hand. The sound was like a firecracker in the still air. Shut the fuck up! Randy's face was all screwed up and uglier than a three-legged cur. He turned from the chastened young whelp and fixed me with a glare. You gonna stop me, old-timer? Not much I can do, seeing as I'm unarmed and you at least got one. My heartbeat felt like it was in my neck and my breathing was suddenly none too regular. Randy looked at me strangely, like he was trying to figure out if I were sassing him. Took him a few heartbeats to figure out it didn't matter because he was holding all the cards. Like I said, Randy was never the sharpest tack, although even a blunt tack will work with enough force behind it. So get the fuck out of my way, you old raccoon, and let me at those pointy-headed cocksuckers. He swung his prosthetic arm and it caught me on my temple, and the world both slowed down and constricted to a tunnel. I staggered and turned to watch helplessly as Randy Greer, the chief idiot in a world of village idiots, raised his weapon, aimed at one of the creatures, and fired. I've heard some lonesome sounds in my life, keening sounds drifting from the hills, banshee shrieks from across the plain that make your neck hair stand up straight and leave you praying with gratitude to be in your bed so you don't have to see what's causing them. This, what emanated from one of the creature's hose-like mouths, was far worse. It wasn't mere pain, or even pain mixed with sadness. This was pure sorrow and something worse yet. The expression of an emotion none of us have ever felt, or ever will feel, or would ever want to feel. It was truly inhuman, as far beyond woe or dismay as the sun's raging inferno is beyond the campfires. I wanted to cry or go mad. I wished I could pass out and maybe never wake again, so dreadful was this sound. At that moment, I saw the world as nothing but a place of wretchedness where soiled and stupid apes can't barely raise their bone-heavy heads from the filth, where obscenity and atrocity now walk amid all that might once have been good. Two things happened together. One of the creatures brought its funnel mouth to its companion's chest wound and began to suck, while another moved faster than I could ever imagine those otherwise cumbersome beings were capable of and took hold of Randy, who screamed. This time, it wasn't only his arm. It was all of him. There was a sudden heat in the cool night air, and it came from Randy. His clothes glowed briefly, then vaporized in an instant. His skin sizzled and his eyeballs began to boil in his skull. The air filled with the smell of grilled meat. He continued to shriek for a while as hot, wet gobs of his flesh began to drip like melted wax from his bones, revealing oddly arresting layers of yellow, crimson, and purple all the way down to the stark white of his still-standing skeleton. 
which promptly imploded like hot icing sugar, leaving a lingering image of Randy's skull hanging in the late evening air, wheezing out the feeble coda to his protracted scream, the final morsels of his cooked brains dripping from blind sockets. An image you won't be surprised to hear that still wakes me most nights. Boyd and Floyd ran. I think somewhere them boys are still running. Garrison just stood like an imbecile, mouth agape and eyes already building gentle layers of new, wary distance between himself and the world, a gap that would invite the town's kids to taunt him as a living ghost for the rest of his allotted years, which, truth be told, weren't all that many. Mercifully, I'd say. Me? Well, I was already pretty lonesome if another truth be told, especially since the day I lost my beautiful Shelby and my boy who never even lived long enough to be fixed up with a name. It's a mean old world sometimes, ain't it? But I don't ever talk about that, not ever. You can ask anyone knows me. Besides, what's more trauma but just more trauma? It can't hurt me none after what I've seen. You add pain to pain, you still got pain. Ain't nothing new there. That's what I tell myself anyways. And the creatures? Well, they weren't going to stick around long after such happenings. And who can blame them? The one got shot seemed okay after, but something felt different. Sure enough, less than a week later, they gathered in the middle of town of an evening. It felt to me like we were all drawn to watch them as they left in the same way they came under the same emerging starlight, only this time headed north, in small groups, walking slow and ponderous, their large eyes deeper in wells, but we felt it, a kind of guilt. As they passed and looked at us one last time, we felt we'd let them down in some momentous way. Hell, we'd let our own selves down more like. It was a worrisome and plain awful feeling in the lower belly. Like I said earlier, dread as if some payment hadn't been accounted for, some ledger had been left unbalanced. And this time I paid some attention to the little ones, the ones we'd assumed was infants. Their unblinking eyes watched us far too closely and were filled with a kind of pitiless intelligence, something much too sternly aware and ancient for them to be babes. And you know, I never saw a big fella put down one of the little ones, not one single time, almost like them things were attached. But I never said any of that out loud, not then. Don't matter so much now. Done a hell of a lot of thinking since that time, and not much of anything matters a jot when it comes right down to it. Yet some things still scare me. Don't really make sense, that does it. But you know, friend, I can't for the life of me figure this part out. But I'm pretty goddamn sure I weren't the only one standing there and thinking. As twilight fell and the visitors glimmered and receded against the dim, distant mountains, weren't the only one thinking the one thing worse than they're up and leaving in the first place. Was what might happen, should they ever get a notion to come back this way again. That was David Antrobus's They Were Pale and They Came Out of the West, as read by Jonathan Dans. Jonathan Dans is a writer who lives on the edge of the New River Gorge, that is, in West Virginia, with his wife and daughter and a menagerie of domestic pets. When not narrating, Jonathan can be found working on his first novel, Riding His Bike in the Woods, 
or hanging out with his family. He even manages to hold down a steady job. If the mood strikes, visit him at his blog, Words and Coffee, at jonathandans.com. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. Thank you, Jonathan. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Our show was produced by our editors, Philip Oldham and Scott Silk, and theme music by David Raiklin. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.